Today, I welcome professor and author Tim Lawrence to the heartbeat of the dance floor. Tim and I met years ago when he was working on the book, Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor, 1980 to 1983. I was already familiar with Tim's work from his previous book, Love Saves the Day, which chronicles the 1970s dance music culture, predominantly in New York City. Basically, the story of my first four years in New York City, having moved there in the fall of 1976. Since then, Tim has gone on to create a podcast series of his own called Love is the Message, as well as other endeavors, which I'll let him tell you all about. Tim, thank you for joining us all the way from London to be my very special guest on the heartbeat of the dance floor. Welcome. Thanks, Marsha. It's a pleasure to be here. All the way from London. Indeed, indeed. And it's been too long since we've seen each other. In yeah, this new, always, always. In this new virtual world, it kind of makes uh, distance uh, non-exist. So I kind of do have a little bit of fondness for the Zoomy. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me open up, please. Uh, I gave you a brief introduction, but there's so, so, so much more. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about yourself and what what I find um, the perspective that you will bring to this table, to this discussion. It's very fresh is your positions as an educator and as a professor of pop culture and how we've got historical implications and all the things we do. Um, hopefully, good ones. Mm. Well, that's a big question. And I also don't really want to talk about myself, especially I'd rather talk about, you know, heartbeat and the dance floor and all the things that spring to mind when we talk about that. Um, I suppose one thing I could say is that um, I think I grew up with a, a, a sense of, you know, being drawn to rhythm. If I look back to the music that I was kind of really liked as a kid, I was, you know, often often drawn to, say, percussive breaks or what have you. Uh, they did something. They they fed. They 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 moved me in a, in a certain moved me in my body in a certain way. These things are, of course, involuntary in some in some respects. Um, I found uh, meaning and solace in a very powerful way on the dance floor. Um, in the aftermath of both my parents dying when I was still quite a young man. Um, I, um, I was 20, I'm just trying to, 22 when my, but all 21 uh, anyway, when my mum passed away. Uh, my dad had passed away th three years earlier and I wasn't doing too well psychologically. Um, and I felt kind of, you know, desolate and isolated. And I didn't have a long history at that point in going out dancing. Um, but a friend had recently introduced me to rave culture um, that had its own dynamic, and I found very thrilling for a, for a, um, you know for a while. But then I found myself also drawn to a much more intimate space, uh, an underground, literally kind of cellar, kind of basement style party um, in what used to be called uh, the gardening club in Covent Garden. It's now become the Apple Store, um, and there was a night there on fr on Friday nights called Feel Real. Uh, and it was a very, I was very new to the culture, but I was introduced there. I immediately fell in love with this place. Uh, it had a great kind of early 90s vibe. And the music that was coming in there really was mainly New York house music. Um, the key kind of producer remixers at the time were, I mean, there were many, but Little Louis Vega and Kenny Dope Gonzalez going as masters at work. They seem to bring the, their style of house music from that moment seemed to bring a kind of infinite potential to the music. It was kind of that house beat, uh, that four on the floor bass beat, uh, which was kind of at the center. But then it seemed that everything could be brought into that matrix. Uh, and Louis and Kenny were really, you know, uh, 
quite far developed in terms of developing uh, that sort of aesthetic, bringing soul and jazz and R&B and dub and Latin and African kind of, you know, uh, musical tropes and musical styles. So it seemed like there was this infinite potential. There was something about the music that had a very communal sensibility or helped generate a community. And in that space, uh, which was also a space where there was a very good communication between the DJs and the dancers, uh, and with the help of some MDMA or ecstasy, I was able to feel okay for a period, for a few hours, maybe even for five or six hours. Uh, and it was only on that floor at that moment that I felt that kind of things were all right. Uh, when I wasn't in, on the floor at that moment, I wasn't didn't really I wasn't really so sure. And so this kind of, I think, a sort of indelible bond was established um, there and then that gave me a sense that the dance floor wasn't was a place, obviously, where I could enjoy music and I could enjoy dancing and I could even, um, yeah, explore this, you know, new, for, you know, this what was then still felt like a radical form of cultural expression. But above all, it was like what, what was important is how it made me feel. And it also is how it made me feel not only being... You know, well, I suppose in a situation where I wasn't with my closest friends, I was largely with people I didn't know. And yet there was an affinity, a sense of a bond, a sense of a community, which, although in some respects superficial, also felt very, very deep. But for um, that moment in time, you're absolutely right. And that's yeah. part of how what led to this series. There's so many components that make up that heartbeat and it can be mm. different for various entities that are on the floor participating in the same moment in time. But for that moment in time, we are all united. Music is a universal language. I've danced and shared the floor and had that same community feeling with deaf people who feel the rhythm intrinsically within their body. And yes, there is a physiological response. Yeah. And you know, the joy of being able to get that total abandonment to find that emotional release that maybe you can't find in your daily world, but you can find it completely surrounded by people yet in total anonymity with yourself mm. in the middle mm. of the experience. I think anyone that's been there knows how cathartic it really can be. And you put your nail on the head, Tim. Yeah. So as a little very true, uh, Martha and, nail, Martha, and, and, um, and one of the one of the what came out of that eventually is I just started to kind of um, around that same time or shortly I was I had quite a successful career in politics journalism uh, in television and I uh, got my dream job not that long afterwards but also decided pretty much you know matter of weeks after I started my dream job that what I really wanted to do was get out of political journalism explore something that was more cultural because Parliament, Westminster, UK politics at that time was was somewhat depressing. Uh, and it felt like it wasn't really, it was, although I rem, was and remain committed to uh, political change at a parliamentary level, um, it felt a bit stuck, shall we say. And I began to wonder if there might be other avenues that I could uh, immerse myself in, commit myself to, that would be more pleasurable and also more productive, like the, the results would be better, let's say. So I just, and also I was kind of wanting to process the death of my parents. So, and my my dad had come out of Nazi Germany on the kinder transport trains that were organized by some of the allied uh, nations to get young Jewish boys and girls out of, out of Nazi Germany. Know. I didn't know we had that in common. My parents also 
Oh, really? Holocaust refugees from Vienna. They both left right. at different parts, but mm. they knew each other uh, in Vienna. Mm. And they reunited after the war quite by chance in New York. That's another story. All but right, I didn't well. realize that you had that in common, Tim. I've known you for yeah. years. Yeah, it's, well, there you go. It's an incredible bond and also an incredible perspective because no matter how many times you hear that story, there are so many common threads throughout. Mm, absolutely. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so my dad, my dad came over to London as a 15-year-old boy uh, speaking no English. Um, and his, his mum, uh, my paternal grandma, uh, and uh, my dad's sister went to New York sometime later. I'm not quite sure how many months later they, they ended up managing to leave, leave Germany. Um, so my maternal, my paternal grandma, grandma was living in New York. I always imagined Manhattan, of course, when I used to receive birthday checks from her through the post, which was always a very exciting moment. Dollars checks were very, very exotic. Uh, and getting a letter with the Statue of Liberty on it was also very exciting for a young kid. Um, so New York had already, you know, already long featured in my kind of in my kind of um, sense of the world as a place w which was important to me and that I might want to visit. It had only it had obviously grown um, during throughout my lifetime. And when I heard Louis Vega actually play at the Gardening Club, this this spot that I mentioned to you, I was like, wow, this is, you know, I really, you know, it was such a kind of, it felt like such an important moment for me that I more or less resolved to go and live in New York City and be able to go and hear Louis DJ every week. Um, all of this coincided with me becoming a bit tired of, of um, political journalism and becoming also, also recognizing that uh, I wanted to kind of explore things emotionally and if you like spiritually for myself following the death of my parents my dad to, I always thought this was an amazing story had gone on to become an, an English teacher he absolutely loved literature, exactly. uh, English literature as did my mum and so I thought okay this is what I'm going to do to reconnect with all of these things to bring them all together I'm going to go and move to New York apply to do a doctorate in English literature at Columbia University I'd get to study with my hero professor Edward Said who was a key figure in the development of post-colonial studies, but was also had written really interesting uh, material on what he calls drawing on a bunch of other figures, intellectuals, including Gramsci, this idea of the public intellectual, someone who basically would be not so much uh, an, a researcher or an academic living in the kind of supposedly as ivory towers of academia, speaking only to other academics and researchers, but rather someone who was doing this research, but the research would be outward facing. It would try and engage with the general public and would try and change the world. And this, this appealed to me because I didn't really want to be a journalist and I also didn't quite want to be an academic. I wanted to be something in the middle, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, let's go and do it in New York because Edward Said was there and I re really admired his work a great deal. He was a bit of a hero for me. Uh, I had this long kind of connection in my heart to New York because of my grandma going there. I was now in love with the music that was coming out of New York. I thought that that was the best house music that was being made at that particular moment. What year are we um, talking about? Just this is ninety. This was nineteen. Uh, I mean, I don't want to go through the whole history, obviously. No, just I, give me, give me a year frame. Nineteen. I'm just trying to think. Um, nineteen ninety-four, the autumn of ninety-four. I moved to New York. 
Okay, okay. Uh, to do a doctorate in English literature at Columbia University and to basically go dancing every Wednesday well, and, night. And let me just tell our audience, Little mm. Louis Vega was no ingenue in the 90s. He was extremely well established. I first met him in my incarnation in the 70s in the music business, promoting records, et cetera, et cetera. He was very well established, had a wonderful following. To this day, a brilliant iconic. I don't know if he quite went back, did he? I don't know if he went back that far, but he was at Devil's Nest and that maybe he was, but I don't he know if he quite went back, back to the 70s. He went back definitely into my my earlier right. roots. All right, okay. You know, we I know were he took, I know he played, I know he DJ'd at the venue that succeeded the fun house. Uh, which was, yes. I think, called the Devil's Nest, um, um, and that was, and it was a, initially he was a, la, a more of a Latin freestyle DJ, but then he became got into house music. He formed this important friendship yeah. and, and partnership. I just wanted to give a little bit of a timeline to sure. your story because it's different than, say, the timeline of Love Saves the Day or or your Arthur Miller or, or Arthur Boyle. Russell. Arthur, Arthur, I'm sorry, your Arthur Russell book or yeah. uh, or the uh, sure. uh, uh, other ones. I just want to give some perspective to our audience of the years you were talking about in New York. So early 90s. Early 90s. Well, I arrived there. In the, but Louis was, the, you know, Louis was, um, you know, lots of things, you know, things happened before, things have happened since. Um, but, you know, for that era, Louis Vega and Kenny Dope Gonzalez and Masters at Work were sort of at the top of their game and they were they were the most sought after remixers in in house music at that particular moment. They seem to be, you know, really at the cutting edge of innovation for, you know, what was maybe a good five years between 1991 and maybe 1997, which is not to say they haven't done lots of amazing music since. But that at that point, it was like they were, it was like a magnetic gravitational pull yeah, uh, for many, many find... people. You know, you you would hear, it was like, there was a little bit of an echo of Larry Levan at the Paradise Garage. I mean, it's not to really try and compare the two. These comparisons are always flawed and fraught. Um, but you know, people would go to hear the garage, of course, to hear Larry's latest remixes before they would actually you get released. And that became see. a that became a one of the a lot of people would go to the Sound Factory bar for the same reason. Well, Tim, so just I to try and wrap this up, you, or you want to come in? You want to come think, in? I think that that you are correct in not making comparisons, not only because of styles of music and or locations. Um, but also because of eras. Music and the dance industry was way different in the 90s than what we knew in the 70s and 80s from LeVan and Garage days or, uh, you know, I knew Frankie Knuckles from New York. The crux of his career is about his success in Chicago. So, of course. You know, I'm you just know, talking about figures, certain figures at certain moments, and I don't yes. know, there might, there might be lots and lots of them, but a couple stand out for me certain figures in certain moments where they're not only DJing, but they're remixing. They are prolific remixers. The remixes are considered cutting edge. And if you want to go and hear those first, you go and hit, you go to the venue. But otherwise, well, that's, really, that's the only that's the only that's the only parallel I'm trying I'm trying I, to draw. I, I understand. I understand. And and I'm I'm also looking at the parallel of heartbeats and how there are different heartbeats and how those transcend different periods in time um you know what you were experiencing in the 90s i mean how is that different from what you had experienced in london up to coming to new york and about how long were you in new york 
Um, well, I was you... just going to, I mean, maybe first, let me, I can answer that, but let me first tie Sorry. this original question up, which is why I kind of, it's been going on, I've been going on a bit too long. I appreciate that. So apologies. But no, um, no apologies, I arrived, me, I arrived wanting to do a, a doctorate in English literature and maybe bring in some other elements, maybe some film, maybe some music um, into that research. But early into arriving in New York, I had a, fairly early into arriving in New York, I had a, a friendly professor who was a bit of a, became a bit of a mentor, suggest I write a quick book about dance music history, and in particular house music and rave culture. Rave was about to be criminalised in the UK at that particular moment um, through the Criminal Justice Act, um, which was passed indeed in 1994, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, so it was a big story, house music and the criminalisation of rave culture. Um, and I thought that would be a good thing to do on, on the side, if you like. Um, I then uh, had, uh, yeah, so I started to research this book. I got a book contract uh, to, to write it. And in the process, very early into the process of my research, a guy called Stefan Prescott, who was the co-running dance tracks with Joe Closell, that was a record store I was going to every Friday night, um, suggested I speak to David Mancuso, who was around somewhere towards the beginning of or party culture and would be a useful person to speak with. Indeed. I didn't, I, I mean, I've told this story before. I didn't really want to speak with David particularly. I didn't want to go back to the 70s. I wasn't that drawn to the 70s. My, I was into electronic dance music. I wasn't that into disco. Disco was a music I'd hear on the radio as a kid growing up. I certainly wasn't too sure I wanted to go to pre-disco because that wasn't going to be the focus of what I was going to write about. But I met David. I was fascinated and in some respects spellbound by his story he established a prehistory in the in the three hours we spoke together of a prehistory of what we might, might as well call disco um which i don't think had been written about at all in any other book uh, there have been passing references maybe Tim, i don't even think it had been acknowledged before no. to be honest with you and and let's face it there would be no disco as we knew it if it wasn't for the precursors and that exactly it didn't come out of nowhere so uh, and indeed david had all you know would acknowledge he had all his own precursors as well you know this is the, this is the stuff of another interview really though we'll see stuff might also come up around david and the can lost, i but, also interject but i just but wearing the journal wearing a, my journalistic hat i knew that this was you know it was like like the light bulb went on it's like wow there's this whole I don't mean to inter interrupt you, but I do want to keep our listeners up to speed if mm. they don't know who David mm. Mancuso is. David mm. Mancuso is probably most famous for a private, what started out as a private party at his living space, and it turned into the loft parties. And there's mm. a whole lot of story and history on it. And I implore you to look it up. Tim's got some wonderful background on his website um, about David, and he is truly one of the icons. And yeah. Well, I would say buy, I'd say buy a book, quite frankly, rather than go on the website. <laughs> Just wanted to enlighten the listeners there, Tim. Absolutely. Well, anyway, this, this, so, I mean, the story goes that, uh, I mean, it, it was clear that there was a whole prehistory of disco had not yet been written about what was going on downtown with all these private parties that mushroomed and also public discotheques. Uh, and, and also that the story of disco which up until then had revolved around telling stories about Studio 54 and the basement at Studio 54 and the door cues at Studio, Studio 54 <laughs> and Bianca Jagger on the white horse at Studio 54 and then a bit of Saturday Night Fever and then a bit of Donna Summer and then the Bee Gees, of course. So there was more to say. There was, 
Isn't that really what erupted our pop culture of today? I don't think People Magazine would have blossomed the way it did if it wasn't for Studio 54 back then. Um, well, I, 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 this is, I have to say this is not something that primarily interests me, although I did take an interest in writing about how Studio 54 emerged. It was clearly a cultural phenomenon. So all of this stuff, including yes. all the stuff I do talk about in, in the first book in some detail, but the first book really is, is the first, it was the first book to kind of, ex, you know, provide a history of disco that it began in 1970 and explored the roots of, of what came to be known as disco with, you know, in particular focusing on the influence of David Mancuso at the loft that hadn't been properly recognised at all at that at that moment. So that was the kind of, None of that pieces had. of love saves the day. And in the end, the 70s, became so fascinating to me and David's story in particular but also many other stories because it was a movement um, and it was a radical movement both socially and sonically um, this this period became so fascinating to me that you know the you know in the end I found myself that and 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 this book which was called Love Saves the Day taking 500 pages or so just to cover the 1970s I didn't get anywhere near house house music which is what the book was supposed to be about so, so, you fell yeah, in love so and so I mean just to you know on the bio I mean we're you know uh, we should be past this by now but um, I mean I've written a couple of other books and I've started other part you know I started various other things but um, but in 2000, in the run-up, well, I suppose around 2002, and then definitely uh, happening in 2003, uh, David in, uh, approached Colleen Murphy uh, and also myself to ask if we would like to start co-hosting loft parties in London. So that's something that we started in June 2003. Uh, David passed away at the end of 2016, but the parties in London uh, have continued, although not during the pandemic, of course. Um, so this is another thing that you know. So it was very interesting to do those to, to do this work, if you like, as a researcher, interviewing not only David but at least a hundred other people who were involved in you know, and then eventually for the three books, probably three hundred people I must have interviewed uh, to find out what was going on in this in, in this incredible time and space of New York City in the seventies and early nineteen eighties. In particular, I, I came to believe. Um, but it's very interesting not only to not to be just interviewing people you get one set of perspectives but then to actually organize and host the parties oneself gives you gives one another a perspective and, let uh, me and so working alongside david did become pretty interesting i have to say because yeah. he was everything in that room as far as david would be concerned was to maximize the energy and the joy on that dance floor Everything was organized with that in mind. So it's very interesting. Tim, I didn't mean to interrupt you before, but I wanted to get a little to the point of your perspective on what you feel makes the heartbeat of the dance floor, both from your experience being on it and your experience in later years with David and producing events. I know that's not really your wheelhouse, um, but if you could give us a little bit of insight mm. into your perspectives on heartbeats how they occur, how they become magical, um, and and how they either change and or may remain the same or what aspects of them. Please, um, thank you. Sure, so I think there's, um, I think there's both um, a lot of, there is, there is difference and variety in terms of what can make a dance floor come to life 
for this and en- this energy that can exist between sound systems and dancers and music and DJs and you know environmental elements including lighting etc can make them gel and explode and find expression in something that is joyous and cathartic there is going to be difference in the way that people experience these things because of different geographical locations different cultural experiences different taste preferences different ages maybe different drugs that are being consumed different musical preferences of different crowds and the reasons for the there's there's an infinite number of ways in which we can we can see that this kind of euphoria this co- connectedness between people through music and dance, which I think you're calling the heartbeat, this can come together in a variety of ways. I can talk about, I could probably talk about 50 different settings and scenarios which are ver- quite varied and quite different in which I've been in a dance situation or a musical situation where people have connected joyously and cathartically and ecstatically through music. Um, So there's a lot of variety in these things, but there's also something I think which is quite similar in these experiences. And so we could talk for the next 20 years potentially about the differences because there are so many of them. And maybe we'll return to some of the specificities uh, because they can be really interesting. How do things work differently in New York than London? Maybe, although these are already kind of generalizations. But I'm kind of also interested in... uh, the things that unite these experiences, this thing which I think you're referring to as the heartbeat. Yes. Um, and that is, um, I mean, if we start off by thinking about the heartbeat to begin with, um, it's life. Um, it's an expression of life. Uh, the expression of that life is rhythmic and it begins and it's caught and it's organic. It's tied to the human body. It's also tied to being to being healthy. Um, as 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 um, pre, as, uh, as when we are in the womb, uh, growing as babies before we are born, this is our primarily as uh, our primary sonic experience is to hear the heartbeat, and it's it's obviously it's reassuring, and it also the interesting thing about the heartbeat is it provides structure. You know, as as human beings, we kind of we like variety, we like unpredictability, we all these things, but we also kind of we also often organize ourselves around structure. The other thing to be said about the experience of of the unborn and then born child is that they're used to being in a contained space, a warm space, a comforting space that has some boundaries and that contains them and also nourishes them because the baby is is beginning, you know, is basically being fed through through the warm, hearing this sound. Sound is also the thing that existed at the beginning of the universe. Um, you know, this is the, you know, the origins of the universe are the Big Bang. So the idea, and also sound, um, is, is a very interesting phenomenon. It's, 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 I, I, I wouldn't want to start saying it has godlike qualities because I would, that's, I haven't really, but anything else, I haven't thought this through, but sound is, um, omnipresent. It fills every space available, uh, and it's omnidirectional. So wherever you are, you know, you can't see everything with your eyes. Your eyes are very directional. Your eyes also create separation between you and the world. Your eyes tell you 
what is in front of you and that isn't inside of you. Sound doesn't work that way. Sound comes inside of us. We feel sound. We all know the, the kind of, you know, the references to feeling your kind of, you know, your stomach, you know, feeling the bass in your stomach if you're on a dance floor as it comes through the floor. We know that's why bass bins are on the floor. So sound disrupts who we are as human beings. Um, but it also enables us by disrupting us as human beings. It enables us to kind of temporarily reduce our concern with our ego, our, our separation, and allows us to start to connect with other people. And this goes to the heart of the being of the universe, the being of existence, is it's through sound. And this is what we're talking about here, is we're talking the effect that sound can have on human beings. Exactly. Uh, uh, Anthropology indicate early, you know, the, the research into the earliest forms of, of human organization and community indicate that humans got together. Uh, in, and so we know some of this stuff from cave paintings, for example. What were they drawing on cave paintings? The first paintings show people dancing. Uh, and the one of the main theories as to why this came about is that if, if humans uh, learn at an early point, and this is ancient, ancient history, of course, to uh, to combine together in groups, then they would be more likely to survive than if they remained separate. And the way they disformed their bonds within groups was through dancing and through music. And this is almost certainly pre-linguistic as well, pre what we would consider to be language. No doubt. Um, so it, this this what you are calling the heartbeat. Uh, you know, and you know, referring to my own work, it's not. It doesn't begin in 1970 in downtown New York. Obviously, uh, it doesn't begin with kind of rock and roll and the twist. It doesn't begin with jazz emerging in New Orleans. It doesn't begin with you know the emergence in Africa of of human beings putting animal skins uh, on on kind of structures in order to make drunk. It goes back to the beginning of of mm -hmm. human civilization. It goes back millennia and millennia, and yes. since then humans have found ways to organize and get together in order to enter into this ritual that can bring them a sense of collectivity and communality and also joy. Uh, Barbara Ehrenreich has written a book that I read only, only this summer, which I thought was excellent, and it's a history of collective joy. Uh, what Ehrenreich notes is that from the birth of Christ onwards, and certainly from the formation and establishment of Christianity as an organized religion, gradually these expressions of collective joy got to be erased from society, and they got to be repressed and controlled and, and channeled through the institution of the church. And this, in particular, Protestantism was kind of responsible for this. But from the late night, and I'm going to, I'm jumping, I realize I'm racing through history here. No, it's late, fascinating, Tim. During, during the 1960s, and in particular the latter 1960s, this version of history and the organization of society, which in particular took root in post-war America, 1950s America, one of the most repressive uh, uh, decades in, a, in US history, um, when everything was supposed to be organized around the nine to five at work, the housewife staying at home, the housewife bound to the kitchen and the laundry room, the kids being well behaved, barbecues in the back garden, and, uh, every, and uh, heterosexuality being mandatory, and America basically meaning white America and straight America. This was disrupted uh, as civil rights gained momentum in the 1950s and going through the 1960s, 
as gay liberation broke through in the 1960s and in particular towards the end of that decade, as we know with Stonewall, um, as black power began to kind of further challenge the institution of whiteness and white privilege within America, as the feminist movement started to gain, gain uh, momentum, as the anti-war movement against the Vietnam War started to challenge uh, US colonialism, as a whole generation of young people in particular, but not only young people, decided that they wanted to think about different ways that they could live their life and organize their society and sometimes took a nice dose of LSD in the process in order to explore You're talking that. about my generation exactly I'm talking about your generation and I came a little bit after it exactly and there was a desire to find new ways to uh, to experience life to experience work to experience pleasure and a, a lot of these energies came to be repressed during the very late 1960s, there were assassinations, there were infiltrations of, you know, of, of um, black nationalist organizations. There was, uh, you know, there was no immediate passing of, of rights for uh, gay men and lesbian women um, and bisexuals and transsexuals. Um, there was a repression of the anti-war movement. LSD was made illegal. And a lot of these energies, instead of disappearing, found a different form of expression and they found it on the dance floor and it was the downtown new york dance floor and it kind of happened in new york because it was the most it was it was a, a an, it was an advanced industrial city um in very general terms you know it was a, the major cultural center in, in the western world even if it was going through economic hardship um it was going through significant changes economically. So the ex-industrial base, if you like, the downtown lofts were beginning to empty out of industry. So spaces opened up in which artists and musicians and people like David Mancuso could live and explore new ways of, of expression. Um, and it also, thanked, partly thanks to its history of migration, and it's also its, its emergence as one of the gay capitals of the Western world, if not the mo most important gay capital of the Western world, it had the most diverse population on the planet in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, sex, sexuality, um, and class. Uh, it was primarily a working class city, in fact, in those days. Um, so New York was able to bring these mix of energies, these countercultural energies, these voices from the margins, women, uh, queers, uh, people of color who had been excluded from society and, and uh, gave them a new space in which to express themselves. And the way that these groups, these groups had experienced oppression through their bodies. The, their bodies were being controlled by society. Queers were not allowed to have sex with each other. It was forbidden. Black people and, 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 people of, and brown people were discriminated against because of the color of the skin on their bodies. And their whole lives became could become repressed or in many ways were repressed because of their bodies. Mm. Um, Women were controlled through their bodies uh, and were told they needed to stay at home or that if they or they wouldn't get equal rights at work or et cetera, et cetera. So these groups had experienced physical bodily repression and they wanted to find a way of expressing themselves and organizing socially in which they could experience bodily freedom. And this became the dance floor. And this is also why disco, when it eventually emerged properly in 1974, was in many respects the sound of a countercultural coalition. It was a sound that represented the values and the aesthetic preferences of 
people of color, of queers and of women, because these were the people who were going on the dance floors where that sound was forged. Disco was the first sound that really grew out directly from the dance floor and nowhere else. But the basic properties that enabled these people to come together and dance, even if there would be differences, even if differences emerged in, let's say, uh, the white gay scene versus, you know, the the loft scene that gave eventually gave birth to the, the Paradise Garage, um, etc. Yeah, there were still we can talk about the differences, but the commonalities are really interesting, and the commonalities are you have a comfortable space, yeah, where people feel safe. They don't feel that they're kind of in danger. Very important. Um, Agreed. Sound is arranged in a way that means that people can enjoy the music. Um, there's a certain, there's a lot of attention is paid to that. That also means that your space needs to have re decent acoustics, um, because acoustics, I, I forget what the percentage is that's often given to this, but, um, I don't know if it's as much as 90% of the sound is down to a, the room, a room's acoustics, have a fantastic sound system. But if you're in a horrible acoustic space, or sound horrible. Um, and then it's about the music. And the music is about not so much like one one style of, let's say, dance music, to use a generic uh, description, is better than another style of dance music. It's what is the, the, the issue, is, the concern is always, what is the communication like between the person selecting the music and the people who are dancing? And all that matters is that there's a communication. And if there's a communication, it will work. That's the heartbeat. It's about connection. It's about the way that sound connects bodies to sound and it connects bodies to bodies. And the DJ as a culture worked because it was a way of connecting the music to the desires of a dance floor. And the DJs who emerged, who were the best DJs, who were the most successful DJs, weren't the people who were the best looking. They weren't necessarily the people who were the best technicians. They weren't the people who were the best connected. They were the people who could act as could respond uh, as sensor as kind of sense sensory you know sensory agents if you like and detect what the mood on the floor was and could both encourage and lead that energy into places that maybe wasn't being expected but above all could respond to it and find that balance and go on a journey that was you know and this is what we call antiphony or call and response and we see it in many other different musical situations um, including kind of, you know, bl the black church where the preacher shouts out one thing, the congregation replies, and you generate a song. It's a, converse, it's a conversation through music. And in a way, that's all DJing is. It's about establishing the conversation. And the only thing that matters for that dance floor, for this, this heartbeat, this communication, this connection to, to exist, is that the communication is allowed to flow. The DJ who just wants to dictate, go off on his or her own trip um, is not going to be a dance floor that produces euphoria. Um, and that also, you know, a, a DJ who also doesn't, you know, who also doesn't ever know how to lead is probably also not going to generate a certain amount of it because part of the excitement is also introducing new music or taking or thinking what music that crowd might want to hear that they haven't, that they haven't heard before. Anyway, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's all about the connection. Yes, uh, to, to sound and to other people um, through the these these selections of of the DJ. And and to your point, 
as the patrons of the venue, they know when they're listening to particular DJ X, Y, or Z that does have that interaction and that communication, which I agree is totally vital. And I'm so glad you brought that aspect up. But mm. that allows for a greater level of trust, not only in the safe venue that you're at, but you're now mm. trusting the entirety of your musical journey in the hands of your Pied Piper, if you will. And and you, it, it, it's a total trusting uh, environment. And that is something that is earned over time. And that is because of the communication. And I'm so glad you brought up this perspective on the heartbeat because you really, you really nailed it. Um, that is what it's about. Um, and it's, it's that, that symbiotic relationship. It is that give and take. And that is what sets not only DJs, but events and gatherings, sometimes a notch above your regular. Yeah. Then there's other, there's, thank you. Then there's other, you know, there's other things that influence it. You know, you can say that lighting is important and of course lighting is, is important, you know, can be important. You know, even David in his very, what was the very basic setup in terms of lighting at the beginning of the loft, introduce some lighting. Yes. Uh, Nikki Siano would say how, you know, there would be a kind of little lampshade and it would go on and off at key moments in the party. Um, you know, very, very, you know, we just know from the theatrical situations that it's often the simplest effects can be the most, most forceful. In fact, it was David who uh, brought back the mirror ball um, as something that was going to be going to be used on the dance floor. I think it had enjoyed its popularity. I'm not sure if it was first during the 1920s or the 1930s, the first craze of the mirrorball. But David reintroduced the mirrorball onto the dance floor. It hadn't been there hadn't been mirrorballs on 1960s dance floors, as far as I'm aware. But David understood the beautiful potential. I mean, the mirrorball is extraordinary. It's not very expensive. All you need to do is put one light on it. And it transforms a room into, as we all know, this. Um, it's magical. It is magical spinning that is full of infinite potential, and exactly. it's you know, and it's geometric connections, and it just enables you to once you know, as does as does the music, as does the dance, as the whatever it might be, uh, all sorts of elements but enables right. you to enter into a different mode of being a it different is one state of, of the being. most efficient and effective exactly. simplest effects you ever can do and whether you do it with a three-sided prism and a light or you do it with a fantabulous mirror ball that's exactly. got gazillions of etches on it it's like stars in the room and you know to your point even though i didn't get to new york in the mid-70s and the mirror ball mm. of course was quite obvious um, I do remember going into Roseland Ballroom when it was still, at that time, it was like a dollar a dance thing, just because mm. I had to see it, and they had a very huge mirror ball, and I'm sure that had been there since the 30s or 40s when they Maybe, maybe, that. but I'm talking as, a, as, a, as an icon. No, I know which I, I get Something it. that was being used specifically for that purpose. Yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to suggest David that all mirror balls are. credited with a lot of what he did back then and he and a handful of others as you say created this wonderful underground movement that that grew yeah. in clubs that people do know like the paradise garage or 12 west or Absolutely. fire island clubs or whatever and then Absolutely. they went down the more commercial venture as you will noted after the mid 70s well, you know, it, it it's variety again. As I said, is is infinite variety. The loft remained true to itself. Uh, the garage remained true to this. You know, what, if you, this kind of 
this core aesthetic where you know everything is organized around the, the that dance floor experience and maximizing the ability of people to listen to music to dance comfortably to connect with each other and to then go with go with the flow of the musical journey i mean one contrast that you know this is this is easy this is what i, I did in love saves the day but we could we could we could talk about it today as well as what happens when there's too much lighting now too much is is a value judgment uh, because some people want more and you know there's not there might not be too much for some people some people might love the lights more than the sound for example that might be the main thing that they're drawn to to me um if we were to look at studio 54 and i think about the interviews i've conducted and it's not to knock studio 54 but i haven't heard one person who went to say the loft or the gallery or the paradise garage or flamingo or 12 West, I haven't heard one person who went to any of those venues say that when they went to the Studio 54, they thought there was, let's in your terms, uh, Marsha, say there was a better heartbeat. I haven't heard one person say that. I think that we're qualifying better or worse and we're mixing private with you know, Studio 54 was not a private club, although... Well, that's another element, so we could talk about that as well. But the reasons were given were, were somewhat different. I mean, there's lots of things with Studio, okay? So one thing I'd say about I, Studio... Hang on, let me, let, let me finish. I'm not trying to knock your point or Studio. I'm merely trying to say that the theatricality that Studio, that Xenon, mm. that those larger clubs embodied in their construction and their desire to mm. attract the audiences of the late 70s, of the early 80s, the Palladium that I worked in in 1985. That yeah. was nowhere. Now, I worked at the Palladium, and I also was in on the installation crew that put the new light system up at the garage in 1980. Mm. In yep. 1980, we put up rings with a bunch of pin spots and park hands. In yep. 1985, the Palladium had robotic lighting fixtures. So I think that 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 each had its own element. And I think to your point, to get back to the lighting, um, I think that anything can be too excessive or not enough. It's very hard to find that perfect point in the middle. And that goes for just about all aspects. I think, um, and in lighting, yeah, I hate it when everything is on all at once because then you can't recognize anything. Yeah, what I was—I mean, the thing I was going to say about studio is, um, sure, absolutely. I mean, it's—it's—it's. It's, it's, it, I think the the—I suppose the point I would would make. I mean, with you know the venues you've talked about, Palladium and everything. I mean. There's a lot of elements that, that to work th to think through, and you know it's very hard to do the you know to be exhaustive in a short space of time and all of that. But uh, one of the things that was that a number of people mentioned to me about studio, just to try and stay with one thing at a time, um, is that they said that at studio it was more about looking than hearing. There was more focus on the visuals than on the sound, and to me, and this is to me. But I think that this can, when you get to a situation where there is more emphasis on the visuals, you are probably less likely to create a euphoric, interconnected energy on the dance floor. You have That's just more. That these are this. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Um, uh, you know, not be absolute about this, but no, I would say that there's right. a. I would say that there's an inverse relationship between you, these things. You've made an excellent. You've made an excellent point. And using studio as the example to continue with your point, 
It's a very excellent point, and it illustrates how, on different nights of the week, Studio 54 was a different environment. Yeah, absolutely. A heartbeat. And if absolutely. you went on a Wednesday or if you if you went on a Friday or a Saturday, it was absolutely what you were talking about. However, mm. it drew a different audience mm. on a Thursday or on a Sunday. Um, yeah. And, and then you felt a different heartbeat. So you had different heartbeats within the same venue as opposed to... Absolutely. And the same, and exactly the same happened after Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager went to jail and Studio 54 was temporarily uh, run initially by, well, Mike Stone uh, and then Jim Forat came in a little bit later as well um, with, with Rudolf Pfeiffer. But when Mike Stone came in, he basically, you know, Mike Stone had, had kind of uh, run... A, a private party called Soho Place with Richard Long, who went on to uh, organise the sound at uh, the Paradise Garage, of course, with with Larry Levan inputting significantly. So Mike Stone, and he was a regular at the Loft. So Mike Stone came from this downtown, multicultural, cosmopolitan, polysexual private party scene, and then in around the beginning of 1980 or the middle of 1980 suddenly got to bring his crowd and his DJs into Studio 54. And yes, again, it was a very different party experience. So this is significant. But then part of the thing is, so, and one of the reasons it, it became more engaging was because there was less emphasis on, are there any celebrities in here? And who are the celebrities? Because if you're always looking around wondering where the celebrity is, you're not actually letting yourself go and be absorbed into the musical situation. Exactly. Um, um, and the thing about lights is lights will, can, they can enhance that musical situation and experience, but at the point where they start to interfere with it and become the thing itself and become more important than, say, the sonic experience, they try and take over, then I think you lose something because it's a sound that forms that is core to the connectivity. and and people basically letting go of themselves in yeah. order to join the crowd, and you the have collective now, feeling. And you have now touched upon one of the important points of what I hope to bring to the table with this series, mm. is that there are many different elements that will combine to create the heartbeat of the dance floor and or lack thereof. And you can have all of those elements converging together, or as the example you've just chosen, mm. the music could be good. Mm. The music could even be great. But if the lighting or the atmosphere or some other element is detracting from it, then it negatively impacts on the experience of that particular evening at that particular moment. So maybe there's a very faint heartbeat as opposed to an outstandingly strong one when you've got that symbiotic energy that can occur between the visual technicians and the musical creators, like a person who's setting up your musical journey, if you're on the same page with that person and your job is to create the lighting journey that goes along with it, you're working in tandem as a duet. You're enhancing each other's performance as opposed to going in there and creating a fabulous light show just because you can. And I think that detracts from that ultimate perfection we look for, that magic that I say, you know, in the heartbeat. You've brought up so many amazing points. Your perspective is outstanding, Tim. I would love to have you back. 
I would love to pick up another segment um, with you. I'd love to explore a little bit more <laughs> about what you're doing uh, today and some of your current parties and your podcast. But if before we say goodbye, you would please just briefly fill us in on what you're up to, where we can find you. Uh, we're going to add tags and hashtags and where we can All right. find you on social media. Uh, we're going to um, go ahead and try to, uh, you know, find you as much as possible in so many avenues that you're in. But tell us a little bit about your new podcast. Honestly, I listened to one the other day and I thought it was just fabulous. Your love saves the message. So give us a little fill in on where we can find you and what you're doing. And uh, we look forward to having you back to discuss the eighties and the nineties. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, well, I'm just, uh, I mean, I've, I've, I'm working on a new book. Um, so that's kind of taking up quite a lot of my focus right now. Uh, I'm involved Can you with, tell with us anything about it. Uh, well, it's going to be a very, it's going to, it's going to dive a lot, lot deeper into the David, uh, David Mancuso and the loft. It's going to, it's, uh, I mean, I always thought that love saves the day was, a history of 1970s party and dance music culture that 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 uh, made an argument for David David Mancuso and the Lost's central contribution, but also took into get took into account you know a, you know multitude of other other party spaces and and um, elements that went to went into making that decade what it, what it became. Um, yeah, the current book is. Yeah, there's reasons for this, but I think that since Love Saves the Day uh, came out, people have kind of sort of accepted the argument that at, at the beginning of this culture, there was basically David Mancuso. And I think we can also say Francis Grasso, but Francis's career was was more or less over within a year and a half, and he didn't well, go Well, that may be, that. but you, you do speak yeah. about a point in New York history where you had two cultures doing similar, if not the same thing, simultaneous. And to tell everybody, Francis Grasso was most notable for his work at the Sanctuary, yep. which at that time was predominantly gay and a precursor to the private club Flamingo, and then 12 West, uh, whereas David Mancuso and The Loft were precursors to The Garage, Paradise Garage. And all of them lived symbiotically and with each other collectively in this wonderful environment that was New York City in the 70s. Boy, it was heavenly, I'll tell you. Yeah, I mean, with the sanctuary, I always, I mean, there was a, what the, one of the significant things about the sanctuary was it took off as a, it was a failing discotheque and it kind of took off when uh, two entrepreneurs who owned a bunch of uh, bars in the, in the, in the village called Seymour and Shelley took over that spot and beca it became the first public discotheque to yeah. openly admit gay, gay men and lesbian women, uh, bisexuals, transgender at, and, and the, the widest variety of people. Everyone I spoke to who went to dance at the sanctuary thought that it was a mixed dance floor. No mm. one ever thought that it was a, an exclusively gay dance floor. It wasn't how New York was configured at that time. People have a slight tendency to think about the way that, in some respects, for example, gay, seg gay culture did become quite segmented during the 1970s, uh, quite homogeneous in some respects. If you went to somewhere like uh, uh, Flamingo in particular, you would see kind of you would see one, almost arguably, one type of gay man on that dance floor, uh, and that was what that was what that party. It was like it was really a tribe. It really was a tribe. 
the sanctuary was not like that and and also nor was the loft the loft was probably more a bit more multicultural than the sanctuary but both places were open to everyone and new york was a very very diverse uh, had a very diverse population at the time and lots of different people wanted to go out and party and it came out of this coalition that i, sp I spoke about before so um so yeah anyway the the new book is kind of just rather than situating the loft within uh, let's say uh, the heart the, within the context of the story of the 1970s is trying to see it more in in terms of um, yeah its own organic development uh, and so it goes I dig a lot it's digging a lot deeper uh, into David's uh, upbringing and his early time in New York City um, it goes it digs a lot it goes a lot deeper into the 70s and it take it's going to be taking the story uh, much further as well because Wonderful. the last book life and death on the New York dance floor ended in 83 the loft is still going I mean there's a kind of I don't want to go on but um I think it was David Mancuso's passing in in November 2016 um the way that the his parties did start to become recognized as a kind of as a arguably the a year zero because they whatever happened at the sanctuary david when he opened the opened the started the parties that came to be known as the loft um he was very clear that he wanted to turn to establish the dance floor as a utopian space and nobody had done that before and francis grasso didn't do that and i don't believe seymour and shelley did that not for one second the person who said the and and david had very specific reasons for doing this the, the dance floor had existed as a social space as a space where you could meet people from the opposite sex a space where you could have a good time but it wasn't established as a, a place where you could you could begin to build a utopia this was david's art this was his experience and his vision and i think this is what we now understand it as this is what we often think of, we haven't really talked about this but this is another this is you know that it is utopia when all of our heartbeats are aligned when we all start beating that same beat when we recognize our commonality and we can express joy to be thankful for our existence on this planet and the beauty of that through especially dance and, and music um so this is you know that's kind of why i talk about it. i think you know the other thing about david is it was like it was unwavering. Um, he had this, you know, he had this idea. It sort of came into fruition really very early on. He'd just done a few parties previously. I mean, a number, but not not concerted. It came together in February 1970, and then it didn't change fundamentally for 50 years. This is like a biblical prophet. You know, you 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 lay down the law, and you do not you do not waver. You are rigorous. And there's something fascinating about that. There's something prophetic about that. And I just felt that given if, if you know, if, if, there was, if there was a prophetic vision going on here, we need to acknowledge that and give it its space uh, to understand it. Um, so, and then the other thing is the loft, you know, has carried on in New York City and London, uh, not during the pandemic, of course, and, and also in Japan. And so, you know, it turned 50 um i guess it must have been in 2020 um i think the 50th anniversary might have even been the last almost certainly was the last new york city loft party before the pandemic closed so much down um so that 50 and 50th anniversary also just sort of seems to call out for you know there's there's something very unusual going on here very unusual for a party to be running 50 years, including in three geographical locations after the founder has died. So, 
And I thought I might be a bit bored when I started writing this book. So I thought, well, maybe I know everything about this there is to know, and it's just going to be a matter of writing it, but it's not kind of, but I'm just finding it absolutely fascinating. Anyway, so sorry, that was very long, and I'm sure this will all be cut, but that's fine. But I'm also, the the podcast I've started more recently with my good friend and colleague and also co-host of these parties, or one of the co-hosts of these parties, Jeremy Gilbert, and it's called uh, Love Is The Message, not Love Saves The Message. Love Is The Message, that's okay. And it's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Patreon and... uh, yeah. So, and yeah, that's, those are some of the, and we're waiting to get parties going again in London. I co-host uh, Lucky Cloud Sound System, which is the party started with David Mancuso and others back in 2003. And we have a party coming up on the 3rd of October, which is going to be interesting to get going again. I think there's a lot of desire for people to return to the dance floor, even if it's complicated and some people have some reservations. It's a complicated world we live in right now. It's difficult to navigate it. Uh, and the other party I started called All Our Friends, um, which I also DJ at. Uh, we're waiting to for the to see when we'll be able to get going again. That's not so clear cut, but but I do co-host and indeed even DJ now, and it's been interesting to to explore that whole terrain, what it what it means to pick music in this this conversational environment and how it can not work. Not as easy as it looks, is it? It's not as easy as it looks. Uh, but the funny thing is I always thought it would be like the most boring thing to do or I didn't want to do it or it would be stressful. Um, and in the end, you know, there came, there, beca- there came a situation where, and I hadn't felt this for my entire life, but I felt like there was something I wanted to say that I thought and, and, con- and a, a way I wanted to connect that I, I wanted to try out. And when I got that feeling... Uh, I thought, you know, I couldn't quite shake it. Uh, and I before then, I was just the dancer and secondarily maybe the writer. You know, I just wanted to be on that dance floor. Now, well, I also love the situation because there's three of us do it. So you get to have a good dance and then you get to put on a few records and you get to have a good dance. So it's quite right. an interesting situation. But anyway, well, that's, hope, another, that's another story. I hope to be uh, able to travel to the UK and experience this firsthand one day. It would be, that would be, that would be amazing if you could it join us be, in, in, in you know, London. I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to be able to travel. <laughs> um, these days I'm kind of erring on the side of caution, but I'm grateful to have the internet. I'm grateful to have people like you in my life that help me present this project because this kind of came out of a lot of what you were talking about um Mm. a way to not let certain memories and certain things that impact people today that they have no idea how or why or whence it came from and that's Mm. a little bit of what we're trying to do and with our with our little podcast and tim i must say you have added so much to what I thought a broad definition of what a heartbeat could be. Mm, and write down well. statements about David and what drives you to the book and to write the book about him. I think that in and of itself exemplifies what I'm trying to accomplish in this series, which is to illustrate how heartbeats come in many different shapes and yeah. sizes. No Absolutely. two the same. They're all unique, but they all have the same overall positive impact on those people that are there experiencing that at the time. Mm, absolutely. Well, you know, I'm just going to throw in, you know, there was a, one of the interviews I did with David. It was kind of, it was a bit of a jokey interview. It was for some magazine and it was, I had to pretend I didn't know David and I had to imagine that the readers reading the interview wouldn't uh, know who David was either. So I just started off by asking him, so David, what do you do if you want to, you know, when you organize a party? Um 
So this is goes to the, I think this goes to the heart of the question, by the way. And he said, okay, the first thing, you want a group of friends who want to put on a party together, who want to dance together, listen to music and dance together. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. If you haven't got that, you don't get started. Don't mm-hmm. bother. Because otherwise, what is it? It's an abstract idea. It's a commercial venture. The key thing is to begin with the social interaction, friendship, friends wanting to be together and enjoy music. And then then you find a good space that is comfortable, yes. it's warm, it's got good acoustics. Then you put together some sort of sound. And it doesn't have to be all like the most amazing sound equipment. The better you can, the more, the pure, the more of the emphasis is on the music, the better. You want to hear the music. Because it's the music that will give you the energy. Um, then you might sort of, um, you know, send out some invites to friends and friends of friends. Then you might you decorate the place a little bit, you know, some lights, some balloons, whatever it might be. On the day of the party, you get some food together. David said to me, the last thing you think about is the DJ. That's the last thing. And I'm not saying that that's the way that we always have to think about it now. But it was very interesting because most people, when they think about putting on a party, they're, they're kind of, or think about the culture, their first thought is the DJ. But the DJ, in, in many respects, is the, the least important figure. The DJ just comes along to be in that situation and to put on music that people want to dance to. It's not an ego thing. It's not a superstar thing. It's not a big performance thing, necessarily. Um, if everyone is facing the DJ... No one is dancing with each other. You may as well be at a rock concert. And there's nothing wrong with a rock concert or a sporting event, but it's different. It's not about the interaction of the crowd. Well, um, I don't know if you've been to any um, fest of the more EDM festivals. I've attended a number of ultra fests in mm. Florida. And I can tell you that being on a dance floor of 20 of my tribe mm. is far more intimate and far more communal and expressive and I'm interacting with the people that I'm with and we're having a shared experience far far more than being on the field with 20,000 people that are on their phones recording facing the DJ and not interacting and creating a social uh, what what I call the heartbeat but it is exactly that it is an energy it's an energy that that is generated and sustained by those people creating that energy, and those are the participants in the experience. And when you're Absolutely. standing and watching, you're not participating. Absolutely, especially if you've got your phone up whilst you're kind of. I couldn't agree more. And uh, so I think, look, we live in a in a society that's obsessed by spectacle. It's ex, uh, it's obsessed with with um, with celebrity. Is, is, is obsessed with kind of, you know, uh, inst- instantaneous streaming and all the rest of it. Uh, and there's nothing, you know, there's nothing innately wrong with any of these things. Um, there's, you know, but when a music culture gets to be organized around these things, there are some losses. And sometimes, you know, the people who are in these, I mean, I'm sure that everyone has a good time or a pretty good time that goes to these events. But you know, we we keep, I go back to the anecdote, you know, that compares Studio 54 and the loft. Lots of people went to Studio 54, which was more about spectacle uh, and loved it, let's say, had a great time. But when they went to the loft or the Paradise Garage or the Saint or wherever, it was a qualitatively different experience because then in those venues, everything was geared up around the kind of dance floor experience and the interaction between the dance the dancers. Um, I would and so it's about also 
you know, giving people the opportunity to have different experiences that can actually, you know, are, are maybe less spectacular, but maybe, uh, you know, more profound. Well, uh, and I, on the phones, absolutely. I mean, in the in the, uh, the, the parties that, you know, the, uh, basically the, the loft and the, its incarnations and its offshoots in London, uh, certainly the, you know, this party I run called All Our Friends Now, it's like it's no phones on the dance floor. We don't make people give their phones in when they enter the because it's all a bit complicated and a bit oppressive and stuff. But we make it clear that when people want to use their phones, they should leave the dance floor because there's nothing worse than a person being on the dance floor looking at texting their friend when they're on the dance floor because the entire group of Again, people... Again, they're not participating. They're not there in time and space. They're not there in real time it's and space. Like, I feel the and same are, way about drinks on the dance floor. If yeah, you want to go drink... Go to the refreshment area, talk to your friends. That's what it's mm. there for. The yeah. dance floor is for dancing in our tribal community. And mm. Tim, I could go on and on with you. I do hope we do a segment <laughs> two. I do want to continue after you get the David Mancuso book out. And Excellent. if there's any way we could do an interaction with one of your loft parties and maybe illustrate that, you know what? Well, that's exactly what we wouldn't allow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I realize that I, I, I realize it's there that. in real time. And honestly, no, Tim, no camera, no low, no filming. Honestly, Tim, if 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 most of our audience had had, you know, unfortunately, we were privy to, or at least certainly, I was privy to attending some of these events that we talk about. And mm. of all of the percentages of people that went out and experienced. The dance music culture and clubs in general, I would wager yeah. maybe 2% of them in New York ever got to these venues that you and I are talking about. And one of the reasons was they were private clubs. So you went at the invitation of a member who was your friend or you yourself were a member. And mm. that's a whole different scene. So when we're describing our heartbeat, it was prevalent and predominant in those venues because that's where it was created. When you went to the other more commercial venues, it mm. was there sometimes, it was there in varying degrees. It wasn't that it didn't exist. It Absolutely. Was it was Absolutely. different. It was, no, it's the, those the, differences that we hope to explore in this series. Tim, it has been an absolute delight. I know that you've got places to be and a busy schedule. And I would look forward to inviting you back for a part two. Even if the David book is not finished yet, we'd love to have you back. We'd love to have your stories and your insights. And it has been a delight being able to call you my friend for low these many years. It's been a pleasure too, Marsha. Thanks very much indeed. Good luck with everything.